Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Hillpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for giving us the real estate and the equipment to make this podcast possible. We really enjoy working with them. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting service and to rate and review us. We would really appreciate a five-star rating if we've earned it. It really helps other people find this podcast when you do that. And if you have any feedback, you can send it to me. My email is srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. If you have any guests you want to see on the show or anything like that, go ahead and send an email my way. This week on the show, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley. So we're in Cleveland. Why did we have the mayor of Dayton come up here to appear on our podcast? Well, she just tried uh, unsuccessfully to run for governor. She's done a lot of work in Dayton that's important and in my view she just uh helped pass universal pre-k there um she's also close to sherrod brown the democratic senator from ohio and uh yeah i think she's definitely like a up-and-comer in ohio politics i think people would describe her that way and she's also just really cool to talk to she's very i don't know you don't get canned quotes from Nan Whaley. She's just very straightforward and very real, which is pretty refreshing in politics when a, a lot of folks rely on uh, others to write what they're supposed to say. Nan is very just direct and, and real. And I think you could make an argument that she's probably the most high-profile mayor in the state, despite not being from the largest city. You know, she's out there. Uh, like you said, running for governor. So she's got a little bit of a statewide audience and she's constantly at Democratic functions and she's doing fundraisers for folks and out there getting on the campaign trail and everything. So we wanted to have her on because we wanted to both, you know, talk to her about her politics and what she thinks and all that, but also because she's a mayor and the only other mayor we've had on the show is Dennis Kucinich, who was mayor, you know, 40 years ago almost now. We wanted to talk to her about the challenges of being a mayor and being a politician and how those two things kind of balance out and how they work. So with that, let's go ahead and listen to the interview that Mary and I did with Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley. Nan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you guys. How was the trip up here? It was very easy this time. Uh, since we're in May and nice weather, it's uh, not nearly as tough as coming up here sometimes during snowstorms. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into it. Uh, you were born in Mooresville, Indiana, mm-hmm. and eventually relocated to Dayton after going to college there. So I'm interested why you would pick Dayton. You know, Dayton's not exactly the uh, biggest city in Ohio, but why did it appeal to you? Yeah, so I went to the University of Dayton um, from Indiana, and I had actually, honest, before I came to date to the university, I'd never even heard of the city of Dayton. Uh, it's not something that in Indiana there's a lot of discussion about. So, uh, yeah, so the university really brought me to the city. And then once I got there, I really fell in love with actually its size and the personality of the people. There's a kind of grit about Dayton, uh, about people being pretty earnest and, you know, thinking that if they follow the rules and work hard, they're going to get stuff done and they'll be rewarded for it. And so, yeah, so that's really what brought me there. And then keeping me there was actually the city itself. I like the size of the city, frankly. It's not so big that you can't impact change and, you know, influence uh, the culture and politics really quickly. Um, But it's not so small that the change doesn't really matter. So you got your degree in chemistry and then a master's in accounting. No, no, I got my master's in um, uh, public administration. Public administration. Yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, So I guess I'm curious, like going from a chemistry degree to politics, how did that kind of transition happen? 
Well, for me, I mean, I, I'm a first generation college grad. And so my parents um, uh, were pretty s- serious about my brother and I majoring in either like business or science. And uh, chemistry was interesting when I was in, in high school. And so, you know, I uh, decided to, you know, make that make that the, the my choice of degree. When I got to college here in Ohio, though, I got really active in the um, political system, you know, coming from Indiana, where no presidents really ever decided and then being here in the 96 presidential election. Um, my parents have always been politically active and they were like, you know, you should really get involved in helping reelect Bill Clinton. Uh, so I took a bus downtown to Democratic headquarters and started volunteering and started and revamped the college Democrats on campus. And so that interest really brought me into politics. Uh, uh, so I've never actually used my chemistry degree uh, besides like thinking like quantitatively or, you know, being about data which is what chemistry and all the sciences are about. I think that impacts there, but it's not like I ever, you know, went into a lab after graduation. So you're not the next Walter White? No, no. No, no. <laughs> you kind of went over how you uh, became politically active. Just to go through a couple other things, you been, you were a Democratic National Convention delegate in 2000, 2004, and 2012? Uh, yeah, and, and 2016. And 2016. Yeah, so four times. And uh, you were also the... Chief of Staff on the, the anti-Senate Bill 5 ballot measure, correct? correct? Yeah. So was seeing Bill Clinton kind of what drove you to do even more in politics? I mean, is he kind of an icon for you? Or? No, I mean, like, I, I liked working on the Clinton race. To me, it was really how action and impact of uh, working on, you know, campaigns can affect change in your community. So certainly, you know, uh, being in college and uh, I'm, I'm not, like, different than most college students. They tend to vote more in presidential elections. They're more interested in it. It's what you follow and know. So um, that was something that was interesting and definitely working on that campaign and seeing how a big campaign works was something that really intrigued me. Uh, but, you know, the the next year I worked on a local race for, for mayor. Uh, Tony Capizzi, who ran for mayor, was not successful, was probably the race that I had, like, a lot more impact in than the presidential. So uh, it was more, I think, that you could make such a big difference working on campaigns and really impact your communities by who's elected that really – got me interested in staying in Dayton and wanting to be a part of that. So I think the reason that we wanted to have you on here is you've often been described as the next star of the Democratic Party. Oh, well, that's kind. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think or how do you think you've earned that moniker? Look, I don't know. I don't know about uh, star or, or whatever like that. Uh, you know, I've been doing politics now for uh, 20 years, over 20 years since college. So um, you know, I think I'm firmly into what I view as middle age these days. But, you know, uh, there's a lot of us that are young, working, um, you know, being elected, working in campaigns and really fighting, I think, for the, you know, soul of Ohio. And we're pretty passionate about it. And we think that there needs to be some new voices in that process. And so, you know, it's everybody from like Joe Schiavone over in Youngstown to myself to Zach Klein and uh, Ginther and Liz Brown in Columbus, uh, to even Wade Kapsikavich in Toledo, the new mayor there. So, you know, you're seeing a lot new of a lot of younger voices on the local level and um, a lot of discussion about like what should the party be. And I think in general, the Democratic Party is, you know, going through a pretty dramatic process in 2018, both in the state and nationally, and will probably bear out a little further in the 20 presidential election. Uh, And so all of us are, you know, kind of finding our voices in that conversation and figuring out, you know, how Ohio fits into that. So the other thing we want to ask, can you tell us a little bit about Dayton? Like Seth's never been there. Like what's the perfect... have you been there? I have. All right. Where'd you go? Um, I went uh, a couple months ago. I went to the Air Force Base down there. Oh, okay. um, I was doing a story, so it was 
What I, was the story on? I was talking to folks down there about, uh, what was I talking to them about? Military issues of some sort, something something the president was doing. I can't really remember, but I did drive all the way down there and it was a very cute area. <laughs> so we're curious to know, you know, what's the perfect way to spend a day in Dayton? Dayton has gone through a pretty dramatic transformation over the past few years. We've seen an investment in our downtown that was, you know, not as quick as some of the other bigger cities in the state. Uh, certainly, uh, going to the Air Force Museum is a good start. Uh, you know, uh, Wright-Patterson is the largest single-site employer in the state of Ohio. There's about 20-some thousand people that work inside the base and, you know, 20,000 that work outside the base that rely on it. So it's a pretty large economic generator for us, which makes us pay great attention to national politics. Uh, and then our downtown core, you know, we have... Um, a very nice uh, baseball stadium that the Dayton Dragons play in. It has the longest sellout in um, sports, uh, professional sports in the country. Number two is the Boston Red Sox. So that's your little known Dayton fact that if anybody asks you what's the longest sellout of professional sports, it is the Dayton Dragons. Uh, I believe you got me with that trivia right, one time. Exactly. We exactly. People are surprised by it, but people love to you know, um, go to the games and the investment that's going on around that area has been pretty significant from a park that you can um, kayak uh, with drops right in downtown, uh, something I've been trying to get Senator Portman to come down and experience since he's all about kayaking and uh, just a lot of um, uh, fun things to do downtown. We also have a pretty strong um, brew pub scene where there's actually like even like a brew pub trail around downtown. Um, where people can pedal wagon, and that's pretty popular uh, in Dayton. And uh, just, I think, a lot of, like, really easy easy entry amenities uh, from that to, like, Dayton history, where you can see, like, all the Wright Brothers memorabilia, as well as the National Cash Register and NCR, the work that they've done, because there's a lot of that that history in Dayton. Uh, Dayton was considered basically the Silicon Valley before the Silicon Valley 100 years ago, and the investment in manufacturing still is there, and it has a big effect on, like, additive manufacturing that we do there, as well as aerospace innovation. So the other reason we wanted to have you on is because you're a mayor. I don't think we've had, uh, well, we had Dennis Kucinich on earlier, but he was long a mayor a long time ago. Mayor. <laughs> and, you know, the mayors are the face of an entire city. Uh, you know, constituents can kind of visualize their problems and put it on the mayor. Right. When you think about it. Uh, you know, the streets, they want the streets clean. They want roads paved. They want good schools. What sort of challenge does a mayor face that maybe, say, other politicians might not, like, you know, state representative, governor, anything like that? Well, first, let me say, I think the mayor's position is one of the most special in American politics. And I really love being with mayors and working with mayors because I think they're pretty pragmatic. Uh, they don't seem to get caught into like the hyper, you know, partisan rhetoric at all. And I think it makes the way they talk and the way they get things done really, really interesting. I think that's that's a big difference. You you don't even know when you're talking to mayors. I was at NYU, for example, about a month ago, and uh, there were four mayors that we were talking about, like being a mayor and the work that is done on the ground. And you don't even know who's a Democrat or a Republican when they're talking. And so, so I think that's like one of the real big differences that is interesting when you're talking about politics, you know, um, and, and the position of mayor. Uh, the the other thing that's um, really interesting right now is if you look across the country, mayors and across the state of Ohio, frankly, mayors are the ones that are getting stuff done. Uh, they're the ones that really are driving the conversation uh, from pre-K to issues around immigration to issues around 
uh, basically, you know, anything that really affects people's lives, the, the solutions are used to come from the states, but now they're coming from the cities. And so you're seeing a lot more of that happening, um, not only across Ohio, but across the country. A couple of years ago, uh, the mayors got together in Ohio, the top 30 cities, to create the Ohio Mayors Alliance. There's 20 Democrats and 10 Republicans. And um, some even Republicans have said to me that we are like the only bipartisan organization in the state. If you think about that, mayors now are even driving the conversation in this state around actions to get finished. One example would be issue one. Uh, our staff really drove a conversation to get both sides together on the state house with Mayor Ginther from Columbus and Mayor Mihalik from Finley, really pushing that to get done. And so we, we view our jobs not only like, you know, of course, like we are where the rubber meets the road. We are the ones that, you know, if there's a pothole, like that's our, you know, people talk to us about those things. But also I think we have a role now because of the just the, the stuckness that, you know, state and federal government has uh, to really push to say, hey, we've got to get things done. And here are ways that we can be helpful to try to move that along in the state and federal agenda. I want to go back to your history just a little bit mm-hmm. and your history as a mayor. Uh, you know, you were on the uh, city council for a while mm-hmm. or city commission We like for to a call while. it commission and commission, date and we're yeah. very. <laughs> and then you, re- <laughs> you ran for mayor in 2013. Uh, why did you decide to run for mayor? Well, I was on commission for eight years and learned a lot about the city in general and spent about a year deciding whether or not to run against the incumbent mayor. And, you know, it was the question of, do I have something to say? Do I think that we're missing opportunities with the mayor we have now? And do I think I could do a better job? And I thought, yeah, I have things to say. I think we were needed to invest, particularly on education and workforce issues, which we've done. I, you know, thought I could do a better job than the, the guy sitting in the seat and, you know, wanted to lead in that way. Uh, it was the best decision I've ever made. Uh, getting to be the mayor of Dayton has been just an incredible uh, pleasure for me. And, and it was quite a surprise. You know, I wasn't, wasn't supposed to really, I think uh, most people in the place, I mean, I, I've heard that there was two other men running against me, and they would get together and say, oh, poor Nan, she's going to come in third. You know, we feel so sorry for her. So, you know, for us to win, and we won pretty handedly by double digits in both the first and second rounds, uh, was something that was a pretty great experience for the city. And, you know, I think, you know, what our campaign did on that race was, give a in these are all this is what successful campaigns do you know that you like to be a part of it's give a vision of what the community could be what the city could be and what we could do uh, if we had strong leadership and that's what I think is fun about city races if you notice city races do and they, they kind of capture the vision of what a community can be and that's what gets people excited about them you see that sometime in presidential races too and hopefully in governor's races as well but you know I think the executive roles capture the imagination of folks. Uh, you're also the first mayor to run unopposed in the city, correct? Yes, which is shocking. What do you think that says about you or says about Dayton? I'm just like really lucky, right? Uh, <laughs> um, I never expected to do that, to get to, to, to run unopposed. Yeah, I mean, I think Dayton has had a significantly tough time through the Great Recession. I would argue in the state of Ohio, the region probably had the toughest recession in the, in the state. We lost around 68,000 jobs during that Great Recession. Um, but since 2014, we've actually been beating national job numbers and certainly beating the state job numbers in the states. The state's recovery, we've been faster than than what um, than what the state has been. And so I think people saw that. They've also saw just the tremendous amount of investment. And so you know, we never anticipated a run unopposed. We were prepared for a tough race. Um, Dayton isn't a city isn't a city like the other ci- cities in the state that automatically goes liberal. It does have has had conservative mayors in the past, and so. 
yeah, it was a, it was quite a surprise for us. And one of those conservative mayors is now Congressman Mike Turner. And yeah. uh, I've noticed from some press releases, there seems to be a little bit of a feud maybe between you two. I don't a political feud. I don't want to say it's personal or anything like that. What what spurred that on? What can you what gives there? Uh, you know, you'll have to ask him. Um, <laughs> I don't really have an issue with uh, the congressman, but uh, he does like to, um, on Sunday afternoons, send press releases about me and particularly issues that would be like progressive of nature. So, um, uh, yeah, so, you know, look, I, you know, I have a reputation in, in Southern Ohio of working with everyone except for Mike Turner, mostly because Mike Turner won't work with me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I am hopeful like he did. He did uh, come together with us on a water issue that we have with the base and called for uh, the base to clean up the PFAS issue. That is a real big issue for us about our water system. So sometimes people have competitive elections and then they start working with people. So we hope that can continue. You know, Dayton and Montgomery County is one of the more diverse in the state, more so than the country at large. Why do you think the area has remained so Republican? You know, it's not something that, you know, I'm super proud of that in 2016, uh, uh, the county, not the city, but the county did go for Trump by 3,000 votes. And I think people misunderstand uh, Montgomery County a lot in the in the state. Montgomery County has always been a swing county. It might trend just a little bit more Democrat than the rest of the state, but in general, it, it swings. And folks misunderstand that about because we do have some we do have some we do have diversity. Right. So if you if you want to come to Montgomery County, you can see people that, you know, are farmers and you can talk to people that live in an urban area. It's, it's, it's probably the only county that truly has that extreme, extreme diversity. Uh, and, you know, um, Alec McGillis from ProPublica came and wrote a piece in like August or September before the election in 2016, basically like fronting this out and talking about this. And I think he did see what was happening before others did uh, in a more national context about about the election and the presidential election. And, uh, you know, across the state, I think what you're seeing in Dayton is a, the Montgomery County is a microcosm of this uh, about um, you're seeing an economy that isn't going to hold up to the future economy and one that is not um, is not resilient to where we're going. And uh, that's a big challenge for the state. I mean, I think you've seen Kasich finally start talking about this. Uh, you know, I'm a little frustrated he didn't do more work on it early on, you know, about the changing um, workforce. And I mean, it is changing so fast. I mean, when you talk about by 2030, 15% of the cars will be automated in our streets. That's a, that's a really big number, frankly. Uh, when you talk about how a lot of these logistics jobs, how long are they going to last, which is really where we're seeing most of the growth in the state, you know, those kind of uneasiness are felt more in Montgomery County than in other places. And so while we still are a dense urban community, we know that that is coming. And I think there's not a sense of like, yeah, we're way better off than we were. And I think that's the frustration that um, that the region is feeling. You touched on it a little bit right there. One of your main issues is economic revitalization. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to ask you about a couple of issues, um, you know, that are at the local level. And uh, so Dayton placed a bid for uh, Amazon HQ2 mm -hmm. in conjunction with Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And mayors all across the you know country scrambled to basically give up whatever they could to attract, you know, the uh, proposed 50,000 jobs that it would bring there. Uh, what did Dayton offer? Look, for us, it wasn't about like the incentives. We worked with Jobs Ohio on what the state incentives would be. Uh, but folks would ask, like, would we give like away the farm for the Amazon too? And that that's not the case. Uh, 
if you look at what's happening with Am- the first Amazon and what Seattle is doing now, basically taxing a jobs tax, it's, it's really the opposite of this conversation completely right on the second headquarters. For us, it was about the continued conversation with Cincinnati and Dayton on how we can really work together as a region and what kind of opportunities we can drive and the gaps that we have in that region to really attract. Uh, and what bore out was borne out and continues to, to bear out in these conversations is, you know, there's there's infrastructure and transportation issues between the two cities that need to get solved. And, you know, you can't just count on I-75 and how it can become a complete parking lot. No matter how much you widen it, it's still going to be a parking lot. These kind of questions about how you connect connect these cities, because it will be one region uh, in the next, again, by 2030, I, I believe, that is something that we worked on on the Amazon, too. So I knew we were a long shot on Amazon. But, you know, anytime you go after these opportunities, that allows you to see, like, okay, what are the gaps for us in order to, you know, really attract um, attract development? You know, I think Ohio, too, is really is really different in, in how the rest of the country, and I think, like, think about Seattle and what they're, what they're proposing right now, right, on the Amazon headquarters. When I was on the governor's race in um, in seventeen, uh, I went to out to California and met with someone who was a donor, uh, who was like helped create Google. He was like one of the first ten guys for Google or something, and he sat down in his backyard with us and he said, "So like, you know, you in Ohio, you you want people and you want jobs." And I said, "Well, yeah, that's like we have the infrastructure for it. We'd like to have more people in the state." Yeah, that's really interesting. We have no interest in that whatsoever. So, you know, I think that, you know, when you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, that is true, right? You know, you talk to some of the congressmen there. They're really like, look, we're not interested in any more folks living here. We're not because we know we're going to have to build more schools and build more infrastructure. Compare that to Ohio, who has an infrastructure, which could be troubling soon. It's an advantage right now. But if the investment doesn't come in it, you know, that is an attraction opportunity for us. And it's just an interesting, it's just, just, uh, I think, really shows how different the country is getting and how there are, you know, there used to be winners and losers in communities. Now there are communities that are winners and losers and states that are winners and losers in, the, in this conversation around jobs. So how far should the state or any of the cities go in trying to get some of these companies here? I mean, uh, there was a lot of criticism from, you know, several places that were like, they're, you're basically giving the farm, you're mortgaging the future sure. on having just this one company come here. So how far should should a community go? Look, I'm not saying we can't, you know, we have to compete because, I mean, wh- what what the state does and what cities do is very similar. You know, we do this with cities on, you know, we call it the moving of the deck chairs, right? So, oh, a suburban company has this, this company and we'll take it and we'll offer them better incentive. Really, you do that in the state, too, between Indiana and Ohio. I don't think that is, again, a long-term pot. You have to do some of that for the short term, but I think what Ohio is missing is what is the long-term plan. And, you know, really the benefit is, is what are we going to be next and what companies are we going to innovate from here and what job growth is going to come from inside. 80% of your job growth comes from companies that are already sitting in your communities. And we don't do a, a great job in this state of really coddling that along. We don't have venture capital that is compared to other states. We don't have a real ecosystem of innovation. And we have such great assets that we could really leverage off, like NASA Glenn here, 
like uh, like Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is like the Air Force's brain sitting right there, and like our uh, great ins- university institutions again. But we're not investing in the way we should, and we're not thinking long term. We're thinking about short term gains, and I think that is the issue for Ohio, and that is where job growth will come. You know, our, one of our largest employers in the city of Dayton is actually CareSource. They're a managed Medicaid facility. They have around eight states. They have around 20, 2,700 employees in Dayton. It started in the closet of our hospital, right? So it's not like something that moved to Dayton, but 25 years ago, Pam Morris, the CEO <clears throat> who just retired, had this idea of, I think I can do this better, and created an entire nonprofit out of it. Those are the kind of ideas and innovations that we have got to continue to double and triple down. And they're not even in like, they're not only in the big cities, which there are a ton in Cleveland, a ton in Columbus and Cincinnati, but they are in smaller communities too. And there are a lot of young people with ideas, with a little bit of help from the state, with a little bit of attention being paid to them. They could really develop and create small businesses and jobs that can make a difference. The other big issue that uh, you're really known for is the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Dayton is kind of the epicenter in the state uh, and continues to see really high overdose rates. Why is it that... uh, politicians and politics or even society as a whole can't seem to come up with a solution to address this problem. It, it seems to be persistent. So I think the issue isn't about the opioid epidemic. I think it, the issue is about addiction. And addiction is something that we haven't been working on well for 100 years. I mean, uh, somebody said, I think that uh, from actually CareSource uh, said it well, you know, addiction issues are still dealt with. Treatment is still looked at as like being yelled at in a church basement. You know, that is not treatment. You know, that might be part of your overall recovery system. But we don't understand addiction. We don't know really. We were just like on the very beginning of really understanding how to how to treat it. You know, the opioid crisis, because um, the overdose deaths could happen so quickly, I think has really shine, shined a light on that. Uh, and then also the exploitation of the prescription drug facilities, you know, um, exploiting <laughs> Uh, um, addiction in, in the way that they have. I mean, that's uh, that's really exasperated this. But I, you know, my hope is, you know, when people in Dayton ask like, "What's the end here?" I mean, I hope we are become the community that learns how to treat addic- you know, treat you know, addiction like the the disease that it is. And that I think is really where we need to go. It connects heavily with mental health. Again, something that we have not <laughs> invested in at all when you talk about health. Uh, issues and we're seeing it in all different kinds of places from the opioid uh, issue to now meth Uh, but even with this mental health issue I think you're seeing it in you know some cities luckily not Dayton yet but um, some of the larger cities are seeing like a higher suicide rate in younger people because of mental health issues and so you know we're not we're not anywhere near where we need to be on this as, as a health issue. Uh, and I think that's really what we're trying to do in Dayton. Uh, we've, you know, we've seen some really good best practices. We're in the process this summer of, you know, writing those up. Uh, Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans, came to Dayton a few months ago and went and really wanted to see what was going on and said, you know, listen, you guys need to write the book on this. Like this, you were the first ones to be hit by this. And now all these other communities are, you know, experiencing this. So we'll be doing that um, this summer and, and, you know, in coordination with our public health department to really say, this is what we've learned. This doesn't work. This does work and hope to have like a body of research that we can continue to grow. But uh, we need to stop. We need to take the stigma away around addiction and mental health and, you know, really start treating it like a disease. You know, you mentioned the stigma and I have, a, I guess, kind of a philosophical question. Uh, you, like I said, we hear about politicians talk about drug addiction or whether it's opioid overdoses or whatever all the time 
maybe they're not doing anything about it or maybe they're not doing the right thing about it is sort of irrelevant in a way. I've been wondering, uh, you know, Dayton was the epicenter of all this, and it, this isn't the first time that a scourge has kind of hit Dayton, a drug scourge. I mean, it was hit hard by crack back mm-hmm. in the day as well. But it seems to me that there's not the same attention, you know, that was paid between the two. Now, you're not in, you weren't in office back then or anything I know, like I was that. a baby I know, then, right? Seth. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just curious. You as probably were who, like 10 or I, I think or I was, uh, yeah, I was still watching Power Rangers <laughs> exactly. for sure. <laughs> but but I'm curious for your take on this. I mean, why is why is this a prevailing issue when crack didn't seem to be a prevailing issue? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, this is an issue that comes up in Dayton a lot, right? And uh, when we started working on the um, opioid epidemic and the heroin issue in Dayton, I have a majority minority commission, and so they said, "Hey, like nobody." They said this in a public meeting. Nobody said anything about this in the crack crack epidemic. You know, we allowed a whole community to be decimated by, you know, basically using the wrong tool, which was the um, criminal justice system to deal with it. And like, I agree. I mean, you know, I wasn't there, but, you know, it wasn't the answer. And it certainly wasn't successful for dealing with that. It decimated families. We're still dealing with with it today in the criminal justice system. It's affecting the African-American community. What happened in the 90s on that? It was a, it was a bad move. Uh, my answer is, well, I don't think we should make the same bad move twice. Uh, and the, the other difference on the opioid epidemic is it does affect every single community. And so um, people, I think, have a tendency to say, well, this is just a white person's disease. It's not. You know, in, in Montgomery County, the county is about 80 percent white and 20 percent African-American. And about 80 percent of our deaths are white and 20 percent are African-American. And so, you know, that the um, silver lining in, in this epidemic is because everyone has a story and it affects everyone. That's when you actually get movement for policy change. Uh, and we don't want to, you know, we don't want this crisis to be lost on the opportunity to really change policy around addiction. Because after this this um, this epidemic goes, there will be another drug crisis if we don't start really dealing with the issue of addiction. And yeah, Dayton Dayton uh, uh, has a blessing of being a great logistical hub, both for legal substances and illegal substances. And so, with I seventy and seventy five, we do have a tendency to have more of these issues. It's, it's another reason why, you know, uh, the logistics hub around that is really great for moving products, you know, all through America. It's also, unfortunately, you know, one of the things that we have to deal with is, you know, the illegal substances that move through Dayton uh, pretty easily as well. And that, that makes the drug market much cheaper. Uh, um, and then that brings a lot of people to our community that we really aren't interested. We, ha- you know, we have to do a lot more, um, work on the criminal side of it because, you know, we have a lot of travelers coming in uh, to Dayton as well because of that. You mentioned kind of learning the lesson from the crack epidemic when dealing with this. Do you think politicians, did they, have they learned their lesson from the crack epidemic? Well, I mean, I think, I think, you know, some of us definitely have. I mean, when you're talking about criminal justice reform and, you know, something that we're working on, you know, in the community and the city as well is that some may not. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't think... You know, if you're in Dayton, you have no choice but to have really dealt and really had to have delved into this because it's affected every family in our community. Will other people understand that? I don't. I don't know. Um, I hope so. I hope they get it. I hope it's just not like for political reasons. But, you know, I still think there's an opportunity there to really change the conversation around addiction. you get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. 
It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So you guys mentioned that Nan is kind of like an up-and-comer in Ohio Democratic politics. I think there's obviously kind of like a slate of people who kind of fit that bill. So like as somebody who is a young person in a kind of an old man's game or, you know, especially old man's game, right? Uh, what, what what perspective does she have? Well, she definitely has a more, um, I guess you'd call it almost like an energetic sort of mindset about politics. Uh, a lot of the complaints about some of the politicians that we have these days is that Frankly, they're boring and old. That's what they are. They're boring and old, and they're not thinking about the future. And I think that's one of the criticisms that you know the Democratic Party faced, especially with the Strickland race in 2016. She sort of represents that kind of new mold and looking at a new way to get people excited and get people involved in politics. And if you look at a lot of her positions, I mean, a lot of her, her uh, I don't want to call it rhetoric, but her uh, political positions have been kind of nerfed by others and sort of taken on. I mean, she's... She's got this local government sort of mindset because she's a mayor right now, but she's also young, and that's why she did the universal pre-K thing because she realizes that's a thing that you know a lot of young people want, especially young young women professionals who oftentimes are stuck taking care of children. They want to be able to have a career and go out and things like that. Yeah, I remember when she was running for governor, kind of her signature platform piece was suing the opioid companies for causing, well, suing the pharmaceutical companies for causing the opioid crisis or for their contributions to it. And I thought, that's a really good idea. And then Mike DeWine turned around and did it. So that's that's sort of interesting. Let's listen to more of the interview with Nan Whaley. So let's talk about politics for a second. Uh, what is a place for politicians like you and the P.G. Sittenfelds and the Aftab Piravals of the world and other young Democrats when you have politicians who are staying in office for such an extended period of time? Well, I mean, I think, I think there's two issues right now. Uh, I do think there's a role for us, and I think you're seeing uh, great work being done. You know, if you look down in Hamilton County with PG and uh, John Cranley and AFTAB, I mean, they got a lot of young people uh, in Cincinnati that, you know, are in, in a way climbing all over each other. And so it's really interesting to see. It does sort of seem to be kind of the hub for young politicians. Cincinnati down in politics area. is wild politics. So <laughs> um, I don't know if I would be able to hold with those guys. And I'd like also point out they're mostly dudes. So um, I think there's roles for us and, and there's a lot of work that is been done you know I mean I'm for, you know I'm 42 uh, uh John Cranley's 43 Andy Ginther's 43 I think Aftab is a baby so is PG with us they're like in their late 30s uh so you know you see a lot of uh, policy changes coming and a lot of investment that you know they're do they're doing in the conversation around political campaigning uh Ohio is a place that takes a long time to get your name out to get understanding it's it's like five economies in one state uh, five regions in one state, five very different communities in one state. And so it just takes a long time to really um, change, to, to, to get elected statewide in any, any sort of way uh, because of that. And that's not unique to our time. You know, I think, you know, Celeste lost before he won. You know, really the outlier was Strickland, and he lost a few times, you know, on congressional races, et cetera, and then came back and then ran and won in Congress and then ran and won statewide. Uh, so I do think it takes a while to to get names. Now I'm talking about the Democratic side. The Republicans they just play musical chairs and like they they can age 20 years just by moving around. Just ask John Husted. 
on that. So I think, you know, for us, we're, we are the underdog, you know, party in the state. And so, you know, it's just going to take, it's going to take a, a longer time for us to, you know, build bases across the state. Now, all that said, there are huge opportunities. Like, keep in mind, I come from Indiana, right? There's like very little opportunities for a Democrat in Indiana and in Ohio. There's a lot more. Uh, and I think that that's the point that needs to be made. You know, for me, it's, it's I want us to win. And so, you know, sometimes that means that you've got to get behind the, the very strongest candidate. And that might not be one of us youngins. But, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, we continue to build enough that that does happen eventually. You kind of alluded to it there, I think, a little bit. Uh, we did see a lot of young people running for governor on the Democratic mm-hmm. side between you and Joe Schiavone, especially. But in the end, it ended up being kind of the old guys who were all running, save for Joe. And I'm curious, you know, why? Why? Why did that happen? Like, why? Yeah, why? Why did all the young ones decide to drop out just to kind of give well, deference to Cordray? Am I, like, the only young one that dropped out? I mean, I don't, like, I mean, it's nice of you to say Betty well, Connie. and Connie. Connie was young. I mean, but Connie's, like, in her 50s. Hmm. That's still pretty young. Okay. So, I mean, like, what do we define as young? I mean, I feel like we're all pretty middle aged. That's true. Okay. I mean, I think, look, Cordray used to be a young one, right? Mm -hmm. Back in 1998, he ran. He ran in 2000. So he has, you know, he has done the same thing that, you know, we're doing now, right? Now, I'm not a millennial, I'm a Gen Xer. So I recognize, like, sometimes you got to put in a lot of work in order to get that. I'm not saying millennials don't either, but I feel like sometimes. Uh, folks younger than me like want it and want it right now and I love that I love that urgency and I love that excitement but I'm real about you know I want us to win the governor's race you know and um, you know you have to do the candidate that you think will get through the primary and will be the strongest for the general you know when you see that case and I you know for me getting out of the race was hard you know it was hard for me to make that decision but it was super easy for me to endorse Cordray because it was clear of the candidates he was going to be the best candidate for the general election and um, I think Ohio has to be savvy about that. I know it can be very frustrating and it can be tough because, again, we're such a diverse state. But, you know, I think we need to get focused on winning, which is something really important for our party. I mean, we're not going to move these conversations around tax policy, about investing in cities, about really helping people with a social safety net if we do not win. And so um, I think that that's, that's really key. Now, Aftab, you know, is running for this congressional seat. You know, there wasn't any line for him there, for sure. He's one of the top targets in the nation. Um, there's great opportunity for him there. PG was super, super young. I think he did, you know, you know, made a lot of friends during the process running statewide and is still well-known. So I don't think there's, you know, there's still, like, going to be great opportunities. But the state is just so large, and there's just so much work to be done if you're really going to be about it to, to run, at least in our party. It's not... Our party, it takes that work. Uh, I think the Republicans are a little different in that. Do you think because you're a mayor and your uh, constituency is sort of localized, is that a reason why it was kind of harder for you to catch on statewide? Yeah, absolutely. I think for, and that's a problem for Democrats in Ohio, you know, our strengths come from cities and communities that are local. And if you compare that to the Republicans who like own Cap Square and own the state house, they can, you know, leverage their conversation across the state. Um, and so that's a challenge for our party. Uh, and that's not going to change. I mean, it might change a bit with this redistricting proposal, but like there's just no power for Democrats in that state house. And so that makes it a challenge for us to really get ourselves across the state like the statewides can. And also, you know, state politics in Ohio, and this is pretty true of most states, is so transactional and institutional in nature that you know, people only like there's that three block area in Columbus and they all, you know, decide what they want to decide in that three block area. And so, you know, it's harder coming from another place. I think 
it's what's needed. I think we need to have more folks coming, not from Cap Square. That I think that will be strong for Ohio because I think they're pretty out of touch and they don't have a really good sense of what's going on. So I also wanted to ask, why don't mayors have a higher profile in the state? You used to see mayors kind of winning higher office even as you know, soon as Ken Blackwell back then. But I think Ken Blackwell and George Voinovich are kind of the last real mayors to really go big in state politics. Well, Coleman ran um, against uh, Strickland for a bit in, um, what was it, 2006? So... Pasqualic was another mayor that, you know, was always flirting with it and had a pretty high profile. I think, you know, it goes back to the job of mayor. It's a great job. And uh, particularly if you're in Cleveland or Columbus, it doesn't have term limits. And so the incentive of like, why would I go beat my head against a wall in the state with a bunch of Republicans where I can make real change in my city and, you know, affect change, I think is, <clears throat> I think is one of the reasons why you don't see that as much. Now, I think, you know, I think you'll see some stuff out of Cranley. He's term limited in Cincinnati, so you know he will be going somewhere come 21. Um, and so you'll see some of that move. And you're seeing the other thing you're seeing in the mayors. You're seeing a lot of young mayors, excluding Cleveland. Like we're all like they're all within like a year or two of me. Like you know Wade is 43. I think they're all 43. I think Wade, uh, John, and Andy are all you know 43 years old. So you're so I don't know if that's going to be the case over the next 10 years. I think you'll see a lot more out of these guys. Unfortunately, that's the only downside about them. They're all guys. But um, I think that that is, uh, I think that's something that you'll see changing over the coming years in the Democratic Party. I want to get a sense of what it is like being a mayor when you're, you know, having to take care of your municipality, but then you're also trying to run statewide as you tried. What, what sort of challenges kind of come up when you're doing that? It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, and particularly I was running against a bunch of folks that were either in the state Senate, so they would be off on recess or whatever, or weren't, didn't have a, didn't have a position at all. So you have to have a very strong team in your community, which I do. I have a very strong um, appointed group. And then the elected officials in Dayton were, you know, Dayton were very supportive of me. Dayton is a place, um, somebody said, especially in the Democratic Party, where it feels they, they have like kind of a familial, they feel kind of family-like. And so not that we all like love each other, that's not the case, but we're very supportive of each other when we go out. And it's because I think Dayton does oftentimes feel forgotten. And the last governor that came from Dayton, Ohio was, do you know who it was? I don't. Do you know Mary? No? No, I don't. Um, it was Jim Cox in 1916. He was the creator of the Dayton Daily News. He was the last governor to come from Dayton. So Dayton hasn't like <laughs> been paid a lot of attention yeah. to. So, wow. you know, what I found when I ran is they were like, that's right. You know, finally, we need to get somebody that's paying attention to these smaller communities. And so um, the support I got was pretty intense that I don't know if you would get that from a larger city, frankly, but it was hard. You know, I'd you know, have to be, you know, we have weekly meetings. And so I'd spend a full day back, you know, no matter what, every Wednesday back in Dayton. And you did. I can't imagine like what like, you know, Gilligan and them did in the past, like running things from the road without cell phones and technology. It's much easier today. I, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like if you didn't have that. Doing it from like a payphone. Oh, yeah. Or like, oh, I'm getting to so and so's house. And so I'll call. Cause you right. know, we stayed at people's homes through the whole time. And we still did that. We're still old school <laughs> like that. But, you know, having a driver and um, being able to get all that done while you're while you're driving was a huge advantage. And you never felt like on away from Dayton I never did you know it was, I was always three hours three and a half hours away so I could always turn around on a dime you talked about building relationships just a second ago and you're pretty close to Sherrod Brown if I'm not mistaken right yes Sherrod is my mentor how how did you two get so close how did you link up 
Uh, I think during his 2006 race, you know, I got active on that. And, um, you know, this was like my first year I was elected city commissioner. And, you know, I'd been in politics for a while by then. But I've always had a personality, if people know me, that I'm very direct. And um, particularly in politics, we'll say what folks are thinking but won't say. And so I think Sherrod and his team really appreciated that and um, became close to him then. Then um, through the 2011 race, when I came in was the chief of staff on No on Senate Bill 5, you know, got to know his folks and him very well. And then particularly during that period, I, ca- I became very close to Connie Schultz. I think I think Connie's the lead feminist in the state of Ohio. And so, you know, if you think about uh, her, the way that she supports women and supports women elected and supports uh, women, the women's movement, you know, is something that is just... Uh, really special to me and um, somebody I lean on a lot just to you know she understands I think you know some of this toughness that goes on when being a woman in elected office even though she's never been elected she just has a real good sense about it and I think um, both she and Sherrod have you know just been terrific mentors and friends to me during this time and it's just grown through the period of um, of getting active statewide so and you two are pretty similar politically as well kind of these heartland populists correct yeah 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 you know, we often hear the Democratic Party, especially you know nationally, but also in the state, talk about how the Democratic Party needs to reconnect with the uh, the people of the world and all that, the Midwestern people and these heartland populists. Uh, are there a lot of us? How many of us are? Well, that's there? what I was going to ask. Where where is your insurance <laughs> place? Like, where is your your insurance place and brand of politics? Like, where does it fit into a Democratic Party that is growing increasingly urban? Right. So I think, you know, um, I don't think it's like an urban thing. Like, I think you can be a heartland populist and be pro-urban, right? I feel like I'm a pro-urban elected official. I mean, I'm a mayor for crying out loud. I don't think you can be anti-urban and be a mayor. (laughs) But I mean, this is something that the party is struggling with, right, as we go through 2020. And I think I think Sherrod said this. I read that he said it, you know, Hillary won the popular vote by three million votes and lost the Electoral College. And, you know, we could win the popular vote by 5 million votes and lose the Electoral, electoral College if uh, the party doesn't really start paying attention to things that are happening in the Midwest. And so you, I know Sherrod does this. I do this a lot with other mayors across the nation, particularly where because the power of the party is, is in the coastals. And so, uh, you know, getting them to understand uh, that they have got to pay attention to these, you know, middle of the country issues is something that's really important to us. For me, like... It, and I think I, I can't speak for Sherrod, but for me, it shouldn't be that hard. You know, the values of the party and being, you know, everyone gets a fair shake and we should have safety nets and it is about community. Those are Midwestern values. But how we talk to the Midwest is is, is kind of like, um, what's the word, um, where you kind of pat people on the head. And condescending? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, that, thank you. I think it's a little condescending. And that's the part that I think Sherrod... Um, talks about and you know I I definitely I I should say I but definitely push on that you know take the 2020 presidential right 30 candidates is there I think 30 people talking about running I think you did that's a for um for president I can think of like three from the midwest so maybe two I, I, sometimes I think Biden. Biden can speak to the Midwest. I think he, he's he, he's from Delaware. It's yeah. kind of well, a Midwestern working, East Coast. You know, in the Scranton. Yeah. You know, he's from Scranton, and like I think you know he he definitely embodies like how he, he you don't when Biden's talking to you, you don't think he's talking down to you or doesn't understand what you're thinking. And it's, it's more about that than it is about where you're from. But the the when you only have like Candor and Pete Buttigieg are like the only two people in the, like Midwest, and I mean nobody even knows who these people are. 
that's a challenge and that's a challenge for our party. Do you think it's difficult for, you know, when you do talk to those coastal Democrats, you know, when you're, you know, with the donor in California who founded Google, is it difficult to be heard, you know, as a Midwest representative of the party or, you know, being a Heartland populist? Is it difficult for those people to listen to you or care about this brand of uh, being a Democrat? I, th- I, th- I view it as they, they are interested. Um, we almost seem like, you know, almost like a foreign object, I would say. Like, I mean, honestly, like, w- that's really interesting. You know, I mean, one example is, you know, we passed universal pre-K in Dayton in 2016. I went to see Bruce Katz. You know, this isn't politics, but, you know, uh, I went to see him. He was at the Brookings Institution because the mayor of Louisville and Pittsburgh said, hey, you really need to talk to Nan. She's been doing some interesting progressive things and so Bruce says you know well they said I needed to talk to you so you know he's kind of like going through the the motions you know I have to talk to this mayor of Dayton you barely know where Dayton is and so I start talking to him like you know like so this is our plan we've passed universal pre-k and so he like stops and his eyes wide he's like you passed universal pre-k and I said well yeah we passed it by like 12 points you know last November Dayton Dayton so he like Dayton passed universal pre-k well, yes. And, <laughs> uh, I, and so he said, well, I don't know how I missed that. I said, well, you know, sometimes we're just not big enough to get the attention, you know. Um, and so I think that that's that's the kind of thing that's missed. It's something that I've talked to, like, um, you know, from the Rockefeller Institute to national funders, like, look, you know, you guys are really missing how you're not investing. You invest in really shiny big baubles on the coast and you're not investing in the Midwest in smaller cities. You know, I want to have a conversation about that. So, you know, it transcends like the political conversation to me about like, you know, we're not getting our fair share when it compares to, you know, other places. And particularly, you know, when you get smaller than Dayton, you know, the Springfields and Coshocktons and Mansfields and, and um, those communities, I mean, it's, it's much tougher. And who's, who's talking for them and who's really leveraging them? Because there's people in those communities and there's opportunities in Chillicothe, Ohio. But, you know, the state and a lot of the foundations aren't investing there. And frankly, it's a lot cheaper to invest in a Chillicothe, Ohio, than it is to invest in a New York City or even in Albany, New York. New York. So um, I think those are the, the things that I obviously get worked up about I think you can feel that right now so <laughs> you mentioned wanting to win the governor's race yes. and you also mentioned needing to be able to talk to those you know kind of areas that have been I guess I don't want to say forgotten but ignored a little bit yeah uh, they have the been for, I mean they've been forgotten ignored by like Columbus that let me be clear like mm. it's I mean I would say I would say like the state politics have completely ignored them well Cordray is kind of often seen as sort of this boring wonky politician guy and I'm wondering do you think that he can kind of pick up on the heartland populist brand, so to speak, and actually reach out to those people. I do. I mean, I think I think that Cordray is a nerd, right? I think that's what he is. Um, I have a lot of friends that are nerds. Um, I think I might be a little bit of a nerd myself. Uh, so I think that, that, you know, yeah, he likes policy and he likes, you know, seeing, oh, isn't that interesting? This is the best way to get this done and, like, gets very – into that and it's not something that he's not like a firebrand on the stump right but I do think like what he's done you know particularly at CFPB as that story is told out that is like 
saved people's homes in those towns, has made sure that they've had protections that nobody was paying attention to. I think that will bear out as a heartland populist view and something that's very important. The other, the other thing you hear, you hear him talking a lot on the trail is, you know, how the relationship between local communities and the state is, is broken and gone. It's what he came out at the very beginning of the race. As a mayor, I'm very happy about that. Um, and I think as other communities, they feel like the state house is just like D.C., that nobody's paid any attention to them and paid no mind. Any, and frankly, even the big cities feel that way. You know, if you talk to the Cleveland Council, they feel that way. If you talk to the folks in Cincinnati, they feel that way. So, uh, so I think that there's great opportunity from, from how he's talking that, yeah, I think that there's a way to do that. Now, he's not going to be the guy that goes into a union hall and says, oh, my gosh, it's just a great speech. You know, we got to go and, you know, roll it out. But I think that, you know, the other thing about Ohio is it is like, it's, it's not that way anyway. That's not, that's not the kind of electives that we're really about anyway. And um, I think that, you know, his brand could be one of like, you know, a nerdy populist. And that, that's good. Before we leave this topic, I know that you mentioned that you can think of 30 people who are considering a run um, in 2020 to be I president. Know. Do you think Sherrod Brown's one of them? I don't think Sherrod's thinking about it. Um, I know people talk about him, but I don't think he's thinking about it. I think he's so focused on the Senate race. I know that because that's what we work on every day. So, <laughs> well, let me ask you this: If he wins, is he going to be thinking about it? I I don't know that either. Like, I really have, honest to God, have given him no have had no conversation with him about that. So we've mentioned a couple of times now that one of the reasons we had her on was because she ran for governor. So you guys talked about that a little bit, right? Yeah, we did. And she was pretty reflective um, and, and talked a lot about what she learned from the experience. What she said was, Ohio is so big. And when you do run for a statewide position, any work that you do is just a drop in the bucket. And I thought that was so interesting, uh, you know, like an honest sort of reflection on what it's like campaigning across the state when you are not like a known brand a lot of her support obviously is centered in Dayton and she's very well known in Dayton but perhaps not as well known in other parts of the state and I think she talked about how much she enjoyed the experience she talked about how much she learned from the experience I thought that was a really cool sort of candid uh, reflection on of of her time running for governor I think that's what you get with Nan Whaley, too, which is unique. You get a really candid and honest um, sort of reflection. We talked a little bit about how there were three Democratic women running for governor just a few months ago, and now there are none. And what she said was, you know, you want to win. Democrats need to win. You can't do anything unless you win. And sometimes that means letting the, you know, best candidate, I guess, you know, take center stage. And when she realized that there wasn't a path to victory, that's when she decided to, to get out and get behind Rich Cordray, the, the Democratic nominee for governor. She, she doesn't really think the Democratic Party is doing a good job at promoting female candidates. Um, I think, you know, they're doing a better job than Republicans. But yeah, it's not really at the forefront of 
the party's mind. Yeah, I you think know. that's always kind of a tension where it's like, do I want to win this election or do I want to build something for the future? And that's, you know, something that can be true of any field, but especially true in politics, you know. With that, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Nan Whaley. Uh, the other thing we want to talk about, um, you know, throughout the interview, you've kind of expressed some frustration that, you know, some of the up and coming politicians that we're seeing in Ohio are all men, you know. How do we encourage more women to run for office in Ohio? I mean, we've talked about this before. I know it's an issue that you're passionate about. How do we get more women candidates through the primary and supported by the party apparatus? Yes, yeah, so I think I think uh, through the governor's race, there was a lot learned about this. I never did, I think, the, the party apparatus or the women of the state think that they're going to have three women running for governor. Uh, and it was difficult, right, because typically – you know, there's one female, and then all the women support that female, and then move forward. And so this was a really, you know, hard hard time for the women across the state. And I think they've learned a lot about it. And you're seeing some really great things happen from that. Um, first, even before the governor's race, you saw the Matriots coming out of Columbus, uh, which, you know, I think, I think could be really significant uh, if managed and, you know, um, led really well. It could, it could be a game changer for women in politics in Ohio. Uh, so I think that's one thing that's, that's changed. I think, too, um, there was just a lot of um, understanding and learning in the primary process for women. Like, you know, a lot of the women didn't want to didn't endorse because there were three women. And so then what happened then is there were no women because women wouldn't decide. And um, having conversations afterwards, there's been a lot of like, I would have done that differently. And I and like me too, like in the governor's race, I would have pushed harder on that. That's a lesson, you know, I took away from it. Um, So I think that we'll be better off because of it. And, you know, that's my big takeaway, Mary, is that, you know, more women just need to run. And the more we get, the more we'll break through this and the more the establishment will change. And you're seeing uh, good signs because of the national context. I was down in Butler County, which is in between Dayton and Cincinnati. It's one of the most conservative counties in the, uh, in the state, but we pay great attention to it because a lot of people live there. And so the raw vote numbers are high in Butler. And um, every single one of their state reps, they had, no, uh, they had no primaries in Butler County, but every single state rep candidate and their state senate candidate were women like only women, you know, running in these races uh, down there. So I think you're seeing some of that. And that's, um, that's very exciting. I talk probably once a week to a woman running for state rep uh, that just decided she had enough and she's going to run and she like, what does she need to do? So there's this um, fabric now. And I mean, some of these folks aren't going to win. I'm not pretending that but that still is making a difference in the next race and the next time. So you know, and I think there's just a lot of conversation among women about okay, you know, both in the um, in the big P political side and in the grassroots and in these indivisible groups. And then, you know, the, uh, through this Matriots group, I think there's some of that happening and then in communities as well. So so I'm, I'm more hopeful now than ever. And I, I was in Ashland University and one of the women that uh, I had met on the campaign asked me to like sit on her panel for her thesis. And, you know, in a weird way, I think Hillary Clinton losing will put more women in the system than if Hillary Clinton won. And I think that that is something that people really never anticipated. But I think that will be Hillary's legacy is actually the number of people and number of women actually saying, well, no, we all got to go do something and, and we have to put our names and be on the line and run for office. So I'm hopeful about that. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There has been a huge amount of political energy, mostly on the Democratic side among women, you know, after Hillary Clinton lost. Right. I, I don't think anybody was anticipating that um, at all. I think you're right. You know, you mentioned, you know, I, I spoke to you in late last year and right. there were three women running for governor right. and you were one back of in them. the day <laughs> so long ago there were three women running for governor uh, on the democratic side and and now they're none and i'm curious for your candid thoughts do you think the democratic party does a good job at elevating women candidates and supporting women candidates uh probably not i i think because you're talking about an establishment that is mostly male you know, it doesn't, it, you know, it just, it's, it's so focused on the win and like how to manage through that. It's not like, uh, you know, the, being a woman is a secondary priority to like the establishment. And I, and I, I don't, I don't blame them. I mean, we, I want us to win too. So like, if we win with a man, we win, you know, I, I, so I'm not like mad about it or anything like that. I think it's up to women and um, women that are leaders in the communities to like start building this. I also think like the party apparatus doesn't matter as much anymore just because of the way funding works and campaigns. Um, you know, when I started in the 90s, you could do coordinated campaigns and the way the funding worked, you had to move through the party because of Citizens United, which I think could break our democracy. The party system is now like a secondary thought. The, the value, and I listened to Jerry's, um, Jerry Austin's podcast on here and he said you know the value of the party is when the party's in power and I think that's right you know of course the Republican Party the Ohio Republican Party is very valuable because they have the governor and you know when we win in November the Democratic Party will be very important because we'll have the governor but until that happens it's not that important unfortunately. I know that you mentioned too like you just want to win and you know because of the way the structure is there are more men and it's, it's like the power of incumbency the because there are more men in elected office, you know, it's much easier for men to win um, or perhaps, you know, gather the support around them to, to be the, you know, anointed candidate or whatever you want to call it. Do you think the sort of wait your turn mentality is hurting women candidates? I, I don't I just don't feel like we have that. I mean, if you look at our if you look at our slate, you know, we have uh, Kathleen Clyde. Who's, is, I think she's probably the youngest person on the ticket. Right. She's a woman. I think. I don't like I got some wait your turn on the mayor's race and you know the but the Democratic Party in Dayton endorsed me which I, I think is a comment on just how amazing they are frankly because most you know most would stick with their generation but for them to go to the next generation is a whole different interesting concept of what's happening in Dayton uh, but I never I never really felt that uh, I felt that more among the women than I did the men you know like if you think about the three candidates I was the youngest woman you know, I, I, you know, I probably was a bit of a spoiler for the women. Uh, you know, I didn't really realize that going in the race. And so it was like, you know, from the women, I think there was a more of a who does she think she is being a young woman running than from the men. Um, and I think that's the other thing that's kind of the dirty little secret about this women stuff is that, you know, a lot of times it's harder among women than it is among men. And I think that's the challenge that we have uh, moving this movement forward. Um, how, do we, how do we really support each other in a way that isn't isn't so mean girlish and I, I for a lack of a better word so right. I don't have an answer for that yet but I felt that I felt that wait your turn more from women than I did men actually in the governor's race the other thing I wanted to ask you I mean you've you've been mayor of a pretty big city for a while and you also ran a pretty large statewide campaign you ran for governor mm -hmm. what were the most important lessons you learned or have learned from from both experiences well, that's a great question and really deep and I probably won't do it justice in its answer. The the governor's race, uh, 
I took away just how enormous Ohio is. And and actually, when I when I was deciding to run, I actually, you know, even though I didn't support PG in the primary, I went to see him because, you know, he ran statewide as a young person. And I said, well, what's your piece of advice? And he said, it's just like a drop, Nan. It's just like a drop. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, you'll do all this work and it will be like a drop in the bucket. Like It, it just... The, the the lack of control you have on a on a campaign of the size and magnitude is something you just can't get away from. So, I mean, feeling that and, like, letting yourself be okay. I mean, elected officials want to control quite a bit, right? And to let yourself be okay with, like, hey, you know, you got to just put your best foot forward and tell your best story and hope that people, you know, latch onto it is something that it was a great experience for me as someone that likes to control a lot of things. So um, <laughs> I learned a lot about myself there. I learned how much I loved it. I, I mean, I think I didn't know how much I love running for statewide office, but I really, really enjoyed it. I, I really love the state and the way that um, people engage in the state is pretty, it's pretty terrific and pretty authentic. Uh, and I didn't know if that was going to be the case. You know, you hear all these, you know, horror stories about how terrible running for statewide office is. That's pretty much the conversation that anybody that's run for statewide office seems to have. <laughs> uh, but I like, I loved it. I, you know, even like on this, you know, small campaign that we had uh, running until we did. And so it was sad to like, you know, let it go. I, I think we did the right thing at the right time, but um, I did really enjoy it. And I learned, you know, for me, you know, it was over when I couldn't see a path to win. And um, I don't know if Shivoni ever thought he was going to win. Like, so I like it would be interesting. Have you guys had him on the show yet? We had him on before the primary. Oh, well, I wonder what he would say now because um, I don't think I could do what he did. You know, for me, once I couldn't see the path, you know, it's just not it's not fair to ask your you know folks to raise money for that for people to put their lives on hold. So, you know, seeing a path is really really important to me, and I don't know if that's just me. Um, it's certainly not Bill O'Neill. So, you know, um, <laughs> that's really important to me to see a path to win. As mayor, um, the lessons I've learned is just how valuable leadership is. You know, I, you know, I remember I'm a chemistry major. I'm not a poli-sci major. You would go and people would talk about leadership all the time. And I just thought it was like gobbledygook, you know, whatever. There's like, it's nothing on the ground. And um, uh, being mayor, you can you can really understand how leadership matters and you can see it, you know, the difference when someone's in versus another person in and how that leadership and how they lead. And so I've become very interested in leadership by being mayor and have really fallen in love with it and, and how it just makes such a difference in an organization, how it can make a difference in a community, uh, how different leaders, you know, decide to do what they're going to do. It's, it's really a great, it's, it's it's a great experience to be doing it but then also it's it's really um made me want to learn more and more about it and study more and more about it and i think that's the best takeaway that i've personally gotten to take uh for being mayor of dayton and then you know it's made me like just very dogged about how mid-sized cities are being treated and how mid-sized cities need to use their voice both state and nationally and uh, i'm sure that won't stop for a while for me Campaigning and governing are, are two very different skill sets, at least in mm-hmm. sort of the way that I see it from the outside. Um, do you enjoy one or the other, or is it just different? It's a little different. I love campaigning. I mean, it's where I came from. The campaigning is, to me, is is part of the governing, right? 
you know, you mentioned I was unopposed in 13. It was weird because, you know, I'm used to every four years going out and it's like I'm making the case of how I've governed well, like why you need to reelect me, why I need this job. Like it's the case for governing. And so um, I, I see how much they're connected. The governing is like was very uh, when I first became a, a commissioner, it was very painful for me because it was so slow and governing is a slower, more methodical kind of piece you move quicker than you know I think they do sometimes in like nonprofits or even in private sector I think public sector can move pretty quickly but it compared to a campaign where every day is a week it's really different and that was a a big adjustment for me I I did not like being elected the first year I was elected I mean I think a lot to do I was young I didn't have really any mentors no one to really you know I felt very alone Um, but as I've gone on you know number one I've recognized that and so tried to help other young people that have you know, first gotten elected and do a lot of talking to other elected officials, particularly that are women, and then trying to like build that capacity so people don't feel alone in these local communities. I don't know if this is too soon to ask, but we wanted to give it a shot. Do you see yourself seeking elected office outside Dayton anytime in the near future? You know, I don't know. You know, I think you just kind of take opportunities as they come. I was shocked that I was running for governor. I think I told you guys that even that, you know, if you would have told me and 2016 I was gonna be running for governor in 1718 so you know I could see myself doing it again I could see myself never doing it again and um, you know I think you just to me it's really about the movement and about what we're trying to do to change communities and give people opportunity and so if I can be helpful in getting that done by running for office if I can be helpful in getting that done by uh, being a political operative if I can be helpful in doing that by running nonprofits like I I'm pretty happy about all of it like I like to lead but I also like to make sure that the things that I care about get pushed and I don't know if I don't have a big enough ego that it has to be me I'm okay if it's not me but I'm not okay with uh, us just kind of being stick in the muds in Ohio and thinking the status quo is going to get Ohio ahead because that is not going to happen. You're obviously very busy and spend a lot of time working um, but we want to know too what do you like to do in your spare time when you're when you're not being the mayor? or being Nan Whaley, or being all of these different roles that you, you have? Well, um, you know, I'm married to, to Sam, and uh, we've been married 11 years this June. We met on a campaign. He works on campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can see, like, how it just it envelopes us. Uh, but we, we do a couple of things for fun. Uh, we like to sit on our front porch and invite friends over and have a few beers. It's great. Uh, but like last Saturday, you know, 15 folks, you know, they kind of, folks in, uh, that are around us kind of tease us that they'll get a text and it's like meet at the porch and they all come <laughs> over just to hang out and it's real you know really chill growing up in southern indiana did you guys have porch parties did you guys have those no we didn't have any okay of okay well I, I went to school in southern illinois and you guys and had those you have porch parties and what it was is basically everyone would go and they'd hang out on the porch and they would drink and you had like big wraparound porches on the house yeah and so yeah you would basically sit on the you know swinging chairs or the rocking chairs yeah, or yeah. whatever and just sit and kind of drink and Enjoy watch yeah, whatever field no. you were staring at. I, right. Uh, so I grew up in Texas and my parents' back porch is probably my favorite place on right. the universe. It's best place to be. <laughs> I love I you know, uh, I live in a nineteen twenty two uh craftsman in one of the tougher neighborhoods in Dayton. Um, but we're like the fourth owners and has a big front porch and all the houses have big front porches and so our whole block, like that's what we do. We've been doing that for decades now. Uh, we have a block party that has been going on for 50 straight years uh, on the su- Sunday of Labor Day where, you know, everyone comes and hangs out. So, so you know, definitely, like, the exciting nature of hanging out on my front porch is a very big deal. You know, I also like to um, 
play a game called Mahjong. I play that with my friends in Dayton. And so actually when I, could, I had to like suspend it during the governor's race. And so, cause I had no time to play Ma- Mahjong is very, you know, time intensive and that's time you can sit on call time. So they were very happy to be back. We got to, we were back to playing that. Um, my husband uh, weirdly is a, a huge bridge player. So he has a bridge pe- play game on our, at our house every week. So you've learned that, you know, while I may be 42, I'm secretly an 85-year-old woman. That's what you've just <laughs> learned in this podcast. <laughs> All right, Nate. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you, guys. Thanks for what you do in covering the state. It's really, really important.